Thanks, Greg. <clears throat> Just be, before we get into this, before I take your question, I want to make sure I um, circle back to something because somebody asked me something at the break and I realized uh, I didn't close the loop on something. And I start, so I started the last session with that concept of triage, right? And, you know, so I talked about triage and I tried to make the point that if, if you want to narrow your scope, okay, to the location analysis and correction of vertebral subluxation, you should be able to do that, right? So that, this, is, this is what I'm saying. You should be able to narrow that scope. Even if your scope was broad, let's say the scope said you could practice as a primary healthcare provider, or you could do all the things in the state of Florida that the scope allows you to do. You also have the right to say, well, I don't want to do all those things. I understand risk. I understand what my skill set is. So this is what I want to do. I want to focus within that scope on, on subluxation, right? We should have the right to do that. A medical doctor can do that. A medical doctor that's primary care could say, you know what, I didn't get really good at listening to hearts. So when people have heart issues, I might do my exam, but I'm going to always refer them to the specialist. Whereas another primary care, they maybe they did really good when they did their cardiovascular rotations, so maybe they're willing to take on a little more risk, right? So you should be able to, you know, open or narrow that scope. And this concept of triage, though, is the most basic, right? So if you're going to narrow your scope to subluxation, your job then is to determine, are they subluxated, number one, because if they are, they're a chiropractic patient, right? I mean, that's the old DE thing, you know? If you're subluxated, you're a chiropractic patient. It doesn't matter whether you have cancer, an infection, or trauma, or something else. You got to get those things taken care of, and I'll take care of your subluxations in, in, you know, and be safe when we're doing that, right? <coughs> so... Then, so I talked about triage, but then I know we got into all this diagnosis stuff, right? And, and this is what tends to, it definitely confuses students, and I know that from 18 years of experience, but it also confuses chiropractors. <coughs> Differential diagnosis is a skill, right? In order to triage a patient, you have to know something about differential diagnosis, okay? It doesn't mean that you have to be able to diagnose every disease in the Merck manual, right? It doesn't mean and it shouldn't mean that you have to take every diagnosis to its ultimate final conclusion. That's not your job as a chiropractor. That's not even the job of a primary care provider other than making the right referrals to have the right tests done so they can come to that through that funnel and come to that ultimate diagnosis, right? But ultimately, your responsibility as a chiropractor is to determine, are they subluxated, and is it safe to move ahead with adjusting them today, right? And, and whether or not they need something else. So hopefully, that clears up any confusion I let, left hanging out there. Uh, question you had? <clears throat> no? Really? Look at that. I predicted your question. <laughs> All right. So this section is short. <clears throat> Again, we're talking about risk management. Because this is, you know, my pedigree in terms of how I grew up in the profession and because it's the Florida Chiropractic Society, we're going to focus the risk uh, in many ways the way I did in the first session, focusing on the subluxation-centered chiropractor, okay? I mean, I would hope that no matter what else you're doing out there in practice that you're also, you know, determining whether or not people are subluxated and helping them, helping them with those issues. Uh, 
this, I, I just recently threw this in here. This is a survey that, that Florida Association, the Florida Chiropractic Physicians Association, they're running this survey, asking chiropractors a bunch of questions. The two key ones is whether or not you support limited prescriptive authority and full prescriptive authority, right? So 63%, 72%, so well over half of chiropractors uh, want some measure of prescriptive authority to be able to prescribe drugs. Now, this is a methodologically flawed survey that they're doing. You know, they're sending this out by email. It hasn't been approved by an IRB. You know, it, it's, it's probably uh, shifted in, you know, the direction they want it to be shifted in based upon who's responding and all that kind of stuff. It's probably not a representative sample of the profession. <clears throat> Having said that, I can tell you that the surveys that have been done asking this question that have been done with good methodology and reflect a representative sample of the profession say the same thing, right? The majority of the profession, it's over 50% at this point, wants to be able to prescribe drugs. I mean, we've definitely crossed that threshold in terms of what the profession wants uh, as a whole. <clears throat> we talked about this already. Um, in terms of, I don't, I don't think I polled you on this, but I just made a definitive statement. Uh, I probably said it a couple of times that vertebral subluxations make people sick and kill them, right? Uh, so, you know, if, if you're of that ilk, if, if you're somebody out there who is, who is a subluxation fixer, uh, and that's what you're doing on a regular basis, <clears throat> generally speaking, you're doing that because you think subluxation's a bad thing. And... I think if, if, we, if you have an understanding of subluxation and the insidious nature of subluxation and you've seen it enough in your practice in terms of what it does to patients, you probably think it's not just a bad thing, but it's a really bad thing to the extent where you could say it makes people sick and it kills them. The kill part sometimes freaks people out a little bit. Understand I'm not saying it kills them right now, right? This is an insidious process we're talking about, okay? And if somebody is subluxated over an extended period of time, I mean, come on, we, I mean, we're in South, we're in, you guys, we're in Northern Florida? We're in Northern Florida. I mean, it is the world's largest outdoor nursing home, right? So you people, you have these people coming into your office on a regular basis, stage four degeneration. I mean, their spines look like train wrecks. And, and, you know, it's like you can imagine somebody going to a dentist who's never taken care of their teeth and half their teeth are falling out of their head. You know, and a dentist is like, you know, I, I can't fix this. You know, this is bad. And what are the health implications for that? Unfortunately, our science and our research, because our profession doesn't value science and research, hasn't caught up with our beliefs. Right? We believe that this thing is, is really bad. We believe that it makes people sick, it kills them, increased morbidity or mortality. Right? That's the public health term, says, really saying the same thing, just using fancy words. And we also believe that it's endemic or pandemic, that most people suffer from this at some point in their life. We even believe as chiropractors that it starts at birth, generally speaking, that even in a normal birth, the child ha is at risk for subluxation. So children should be checked immediately at birth. So we think this is a serious public health issue uh, collectively as a profession. 
<clears throat> the problem is that as a profession, we don't have cultural authority. So when we go out there and say, hey, you know, there's this thing out there, there's this pathophysiological process called vertebral subluxation that leads to increased morbidity and mortality, and most people are at risk for it, they think we're crazy. And imagine if the shoe was on the other foot, right? Because what do chiropractors do when organized medicine, allopathy, comes out and says, we got a new disease, right? And it makes people sick and it kills them, and a lot of people have it. We're like, you know, we get the pitchforks out and the torches, and we want to storm the castle. How dare they say that, right? But when we do it, it's okay. I mean, it, it doesn't work, right? It's a contradiction. We, we have a serious problem that we have to address with that. And ultimately, it's only going to be addressed through research, through science. And I've had to come to the realization and accept the fact that <clears throat> I may not see that in my lifetime. Because there's way too much work to be done in order to flesh all that out, number one. And number two, the will of the profession is missing to do it. The profession just doesn't seem to be interested in it. Okay? You know, we don't put resources into it in terms of the science and the research behind it. So <clears throat> we've got some work to do. The good thing in Florida is that subluxation is in the statute. It's right there. The word vertebral subluxation is right there. We even have some of the colloquial terminology that it interferes with the normal generation, transmission, and expression of nerve impulses between the brain, organs, and tissue cells of the body, thereby causing disease, or adjusted manipulation, and so forth. I mean, that's some strong language relative to vertebral subluxation in this state. So reading this should give us comfort that in the great state of Florida, you can narrow your practice to subluxation, right? That that could be your focus as long as you are also practicing the art of triage in terms of determining whether or not it's safe to go ahead and take care of this person. The other thing, of course, <clears throat> is, as I said, CCE, Council on Chiropractic Education, is right there. It's in the law. And this is the problem that we have in this profession. Until that language is taken out of every single law in this country, then we are going to be under the thumb of the cartel that runs this profession and is moving us into this primary care um, realm uh, and the ability to prescribe drugs. Right? That is going to have to be changed. And this was a strategic decision that was made in 1974. In 1974, <clears throat> the CCE, Council on Chiropractic Education, finally got recognized by the United States Department of Education to accredit chiropractic schools, okay? There, there's a whole history of what happened before 1974, but in 1974, you know, they got in. And there's actually documentation that after they got that recognition by the Department of Education, they contacted the FCLB, the Federation of Chiropractic Licensing Boards. That's an organization made up of all the state boards in the country. And the CCE said, hey, we did our job. We got recognized by the government. Now you, you, meaning the states, have to do your job and you've got to put language in the law in every state to make it mandatory that all the schools have to be accredited by the Council on Chiropractic Education. 
in order for these graduates to get licensed. And then they spent the next 30 to 40 years in these states doing just that. Until now, we're all but maybe six states where that language is not in the law. So they have complete control over the profession. Yes? Absolutely. In fact, in fact, that was part of a legislative uh, agenda package that the board was considering over the past two years, and the board voted it down. The board voted to keep the word medicine as the name of the board. They voted to keep the term physician in the law, and they voted to keep CCE. And they also, the other thing they voted to keep in was the, bachelor, uh, the bachelor's degree requirement as well. And then one of the reasons why the bachelor's degree requirement needs to go <coughs> is because foreign graduates can't get a license to practice in the state of Florida because they don't have, uh, they don't get doctor of chiropractic degrees, right? They get bachelor of science in chiropractic degrees. So it's a whole crazy thing that keeps foreign graduates from getting licensed in the state, which ends up harming the citizens of the state of Florida, obviously. But there's a whole bunch of politics behind why the board decide to do that, right? That I'm, I'm going to try and keep my mouth shut about it. <laughs> um, we talked about subluxations making people sick and killing them. Here's a research study. This was published many years ago. This is by John Hart out of Sherman College. He actually did this as part of his thesis. The title of the, you know, so it's always nice when the title of the research study really tells you everything you need to know. Correlation of U.S. mortality rates with chiropractor ratios and other determinants. He was looking at the year 1995. Bottom line with this is his research, and he, he did this study looking at chiropractors and mortality rates, and then he compared it with medical doctors. And he also looked at age, income, and education related to this. And guess what he found? He found that when there are more chiropractors, the mortality rates are lower. When there are more medical doctors, the mortality rates are higher, right? Really no surprise. I mean, you know, intuitively we know this as chiropractors. We also, you know, if you've been around a while in this profession, you've seen these news stories that come out, like when doctors go on strike, you know, the death rates go down. I'm sure you've seen these. There's been a few times where that's happened, right? Um, well, he actually just studied it and put pen to paper. So there's actually a correlation between these things. So I alluded to this before, this concept that, that's out there uh, relative to the cartel and some of the people that control this profession, that subluxation and the management of subluxation is actually fraudulent. You know, if you were to ask me, you know, hey, McCoy, what, what kind of things keep you, keep you up at night uh, in terms of this profession? You know, the stroke stuff concerns me and some of the things we've already talked about concerns me. But this is a big one because, to me, this is the heart and soul of chiropractic. And to be at a point in, in this part of our history as a profession where we have leaders. I mean, we're not talking just about anybody. We're talking about people in leadership positions that are out there publicly stating that subluxation and the management of his fraudulent activity. I mean, that's, that's a problem. I mean, what has happened to this profession that we've gotten to that point? Here's an example of this. Uh, all of the uh, chiropractic schools in Europe, uh, this was, I think, about a year ago, uh, signed an anti-subluxation position statement. And when I say all the European schools, it was all except for two of them. Uh, Barcelona did not sign it, and McTimony did not sign it. I think there was a school in Spain that also didn't sign it, but I don't think they even have accreditation. 
Um, but they signed this anti-position. These are all of the schools that train chiropractors in Europe that said, we don't want anything to do with this subluxation thing. You have to understand how powerful this is, okay? Well, many of these people want to practice primary care, okay? If they feel that chiropractic, in terms of the art of historically what chiropractors did as part of that, then it's spinal manipulation to reduce joint dysfunction, that you're really just unsticking joints and there's nothing beyond that, you know, and, and that's as far as they'll take it. But uh, let's. But you need, what I need you to understand is that this kind of stuff is then used against chiropractors who are trying to practice in a subluxation model, right? The smart attorney is going to say, well, listen, I mean, major schools across the world don't even believe in this thing. When the CCE took subluxation out of its standards a couple of years ago, I mean, that was unbelievable in terms of the scope of what that meant, right? Because if you were under the gun with either a state board or a malpractice case and the issue somehow centered on subluxation, because that's what, a, what some of these smart attorneys do is they try to couch the whole thing is that you're this crazy subluxation fixer. And then they build this whole case around the fact that, well, you're just, you know, you're like a lone wolf. Most of the profession doesn't even buy into this stuff. This stuff is used against us. The ACA, they want to remove subluxation from Medicare. Right? The ACA wants Medicare to pay chiropractors, and listen, there's a lot of you in the room who say, oh boy, that would be good. They want Medicare to pay you in concert with the scope of practice in your state. So if you can do a whole bunch of stuff, they want Medicare to reimburse you for all of that stuff based upon the state scope of practice. And the ACA says the main thing standing in the way of that happening is how Medicare is focused on subluxation, so they want to take that out of the Medicare language. <clears throat> Australia, I'm using some, you know, some uh, international incidents or, or examples, uh, but I'll, I'll show you how it ties into what's happening in the States. Uh, and, and one of the reasons I'm using like Australia and the United Kingdom and some of these other places is that like in the case of Australia and the United Kingdom, they only have one regulatory board. In the United States, we have 50, okay? And, and what I want to stress to you is that the same things that I tell you are happening in Australia are also happening in the States. You just don't hear about it because it might not be in your state. And so it's not on your radar screen. But I can guarantee you the same stuff is happening. So in Australia not too long ago, and you may have heard about this, the chiropractic board in Australia started to clamp down on chiropractors relative to claims and advertising having to do with children. Specifically, that there was a relationship between manual therapy for spinal problems and achieving general wellness or treating various organic diseases and infections or that spinal problems may have a direct role in various organic diseases and infections. There is insufficient scientific evidence to support these claims. A particular concern is the number of treatment claims and advertising relating to infants and children. Claims suggesting that manual therapy for spinal problems can assist with general wellness and or benefit of a variety of pediatric syndromes and organic conditions are not supported by satisfactory evidence. This includes claims relating to developmental and behavioral disorders, ADHD, autism, asthma, colic, bedwetting, ear infection, digestive problems. Advertising, here's the key. 
advertising claims that are contrary to high-level evidence or unacceptable. Everybody needs to understand what that means because that is the key to all of this. Okay? Advertising claims that are contrary to high-level evidence. What is high-level evidence? Randomized controlled clinical trials. Okay? So let's understand what they are saying. They are saying that if you don't have a randomized controlled trial, you cannot make a claim. And you think about our profession, think about how many RCTs we have outside of back pain, right? I mean, very few. I could probably count them on one or two hands, okay? The problem is that that's not consistent with what evidence-based practice is because evidence-based practice doesn't say the only thing that counts as evidence is RCTs. So what's happening in our profession is the cartel is taking the evidence-based model and they're doing like an intellectual sleight of hand and saying, well, we're only going to accept RCTs when that's not the way evidence-based practice works. Evidence-based practice, the way it works is you look at the evidence, but it's all of the evidence, including case studies, including expert opinion, okay? And you incorporate what the patient wants with the clinical state and circumstance of the patient sitting in front of you, and then you make recommendations to the patient. That's an evidence-based model. They're saying, no, if you don't have RCTs, you can't make any claims, okay? And then they systematically went after a bunch of chiropractors. Where this stems from, sort of a roundabout way to get to the point, is from this thing called the Bronfurt Report, which came out of the UK. It's called the Bromford Report because that's the name of the guy who is the lead author. Now, there are some other authors on here, okay, <clears throat> that were involved in this. And without getting into details, because I got to keep myself out of trouble, I will tell you that these other chiropractors are consultants for one of the largest managed care organizations doing business in chiropractic, okay? So they have a vested interest in keeping costs down, okay, and making sure that chiropractors aren't managing anything beyond neck pain, back pain, and headaches in this managed care organization, okay? So this Bronfer report came out, and let me see if I have any, no, I don't have the details of it, but pretty much said, listen, if you don't have RCTs, then you can't make claims, and they limited the claims that you can make having to do with neck and back pain, you know, musculoskeletal problems. There were a few visceral things that they allowed in there, um, but there were only like three or four of them, okay? So it wasn't much. So this Bromford report came out, and it made its way throughout the profession, definitely in the United Kingdom, definitely in Australia and New Zealand, and now certainly in the United States because a bunch of these guys live in the United States and now are using it in the work that they do as reviewers for insurance companies and expert witnesses against chiropractors and so forth. Here's another example of how this stuff plays out. <clears throat> you can see where this is from, National University of Health Sciences, right? That, that's National College, Chiropractic College. It's now a university. This is a letter, because I know you can't see the writing. This is a letter from the dean of the clinics from that institution just last year. The letter is written to a chiropractor who applied to be a preceptor for students. So 
students in chiropractic college now, generally speaking, they do preceptorships where they spend their last year, last six months actually working in a chiropractic office. This chiropractor applied. He said, okay, hey, I want to do that. I, you know, I want to help out these students. I want to be one of these preceptors. He applies. They send them back a letter saying, basically, you've been turned down, and here are the reasons. It was not approved due to the following. Deficient quality of medical records. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I told you I've been you know, doing expert witness work for about 30 years in chiropractic. I've never seen a set of records that I liked. They, they don't exist. You, you know what I'm saying? It's just you're not going to find a perfect set of records. Okay? So that's, that's the low-hanging fruit there. Number two is the key. Philosophical incompatibility, e.g. subluxation-based practice. This guy is a subluxation-based practitioner. They somehow figured out that he was, and that's one of the reasons they don't want their students practicing. This is a major chiropractic institution that is saying, oh, we don't want anything to do with you know, our students being exposed to subluxation-based practice. Here's a letter from Kaiser University. This is the newest chiropractic program right here in the great state of Florida. Right? It's down there in Palm Beach. They just opened up a chiropractic program. This is a let you may, if you're licensed in Florida, you probably got this letter. I got one. And basically, it's a letter inviting you to apply to be a preceptor for them. Okay? And in the letter, he's telling you about their program. I think I might have this one blown up. He says, Let me introduce myself. Uh, I'm Dr. Wiles. I'm the founding dean of the College of Chiropractic Medicine at Kaiser University. So they're even calling their program a College of Chiropractic Medicine. Now, you might ask, well, how can they do that? They can do that because in the state of Florida, chiropractic is the practice of medicine. Your license says the Board of Chiropractic Medicine on it. Right? That's the only reason they can get away with this. He then goes on to say, you know, there hasn't been any new programs since 2002. We're the first program in South Florida. And then here we go. Our program will stress evidence-based practice, interprofessional collaboration, and the role of the chiropractor as a team member in healthcare delivery. Sounds great. Who could be against that? Right? I mean, why wouldn't we want that? Anybody, anybody should get on board with that. And then he tells us, we will follow the model of chiropractic as spine care, as described in the seminal paper by Nelson et al. in 2005. Look at the authors. Look at that. See? You see some overlap here? Right? So they are following that model of chiropractic. They even quote the whole paper. Now, these two authors, these last two, I'm not even going to say their names because I don't want to, I got to try and stay out of some trouble. <clears throat> they are principals in the largest managed care organization doing business in the chiropractic profession. Okay? And this school in Florida now is following their model of care. This is from that paper that they are saying their curriculum is modeled on. These are quotes from this research paper. The argument that the public can be persuaded to understand and accept the subluxation model of chiropractic has been tested and it has failed. The profession is further encumbered by questionable institutionalized practices. For example, some practice consultants promote the policy of withholding administration of treatment on the first visit, preferring to reschedule the patient for a report of findings on a subsequent visit. 
Where is the clinical rationale for such practice? Are these doctors insufficiently skilled in interpreting the history and exam findings for a routine first visit without time to confer and study? <clears throat> Others promote the use of x-rays on nearly every patient in order to determine biomechanical deviations from a theoretical model of a normal spine, implying that this information is so essential to successful treatment that the benefit outweighs the very real risk of radiation exposure. These and other business practices promoted across the profession are tolerated without challenge by the rank and file. These practices degrade the credibility of the profession and its members as competent clinicians and diminish the public's trust and level of cultural authority. I don't want to spend too much time on this one, but I don't want to blow by it too quickly either. Every anatomy book that's ever been published has a picture of the spine from the ADP and lateral. And on the lateral, the spine has curves. And on the ADP, the spine is straight. That's the normal model of a spine. That is the way it is supposed to be. Okay. Don Harrison, I don't know if anybody you knew who Don Harrison was. Don Harrison spent his life in an attempt to prove that normal model. Okay? He got a, a master's degree in mechanical engineering in order to be able to do this. And then he went on to get his PhD in mathematics in order to be able to do it. And then he did a series of research studies, clinical studies, as well as just did the math on what a normal spine is supposed to look like. And he proved, as much as you can prove something like this, that the A to P and the lateral that we see in all these anatomy textbooks, that is the normal. And he even came up with some numbers and some ranges for this, right? The problem is that if you are a chiropractic managed care company and you want to make money, the last thing you want is for there to be the existence of a normal spinal model. Because then all of the insureds that you have under you they are then entitled to go to the chiropractor and seek that normal spinal model, which is going to be, generally speaking, more than six visits, right? I mean, it could take months. They don't want to pay for that. So what do they do? They discount that there's any such thing as a normal model. There actually is in the scientific literature, but they're saying there isn't. These people now are running a school. They have a curriculum based on it. Despite the critical threats to the validity of this paradigm, a sizable proportion of the profession still holds these postulates to be valid. The segment of the profession that continues to hold firmly to Palmer's postulates do so only through a suspension of disbelief. Any Palmer grads in here? Palmer grads? You know what Palmer's postulates are? Right? The body is a self-healing, self-regulating organism. The nervous system controls and coordinates all functions in the body. Vertebral subluxations interfere with the function of the nervous system. Chiropractors correct subluxations. This is Palmer's postulates. I mean, in a nutshell, they're saying if you believe that, you only do it through a suspension of disbelief. You're an idiot, basically, is what they're saying. They put this in writing in a peer-reviewed paper that's published in Index Medicus. They have control of a school now. I mean, they have control of many schools, but this is the only school that came right out in a letter and put it in writing and saying, we're adopting this model. Screw all of you crazy people. 
vitalism does not require any further or more extensive analysis before rejecting it. To reject vitalism is to simply announce that one accepts the conventional view of biology similar to the way one accepts the conventional view of cosmology by rejecting a geocentric universe. I mean, they're just coming right out and saying, you guys are morons. You must believe that the universe revolves around the earth if you believe that the body is a self-regulating, self-healing organism. Why do we put up with this as a profession? I mean, this is how deep the apathy is. I mean, you know, when I said, you know, I took a long walk on the beach this morning to try to just calm down because I get in these rooms and I start talking about it and I just lose my shit. Because the apathy of this profession, it's just, it's sickening. Nobody cares about this stuff. And meanwhile, the profession is just being destroyed and people are going about their business, right? Nothing to see here, just move along. Well, similar to her question, right? If they're, if they're keeping any semblance of the unique, you know, science, philosophy, and art of chiropractic, then they are calling it spinal manipulation to correct articular dysfunction. And we're going to get to that in a second. Did you ask her question, Dr. Wiles, about that after you got that letter? No. I'm, I'm still counting. You know, counting to 10, I'm still counting. I have to be really careful when I, because I, I just, sometimes I can't control my emotions and stuff like that. Right, I mean, they're not going to do it. I mean, they, they know exactly what they're doing. I mean, this isn't, this isn't because, you know, he doesn't know and he's ignorant. This is all calculated, what they're doing, okay? And, you know, when it, so when it comes to the subluxation thing, right, and I hear this all the time, right? You get some grumpy guy who's sitting in the back of the room. No, no offense to anybody in here. <laughs> but like, why bother? Chiropractors can't agree on subluxation. That's why we have this problem. If we could just agree on what a subluxation is, we'd be fine, right? 100% grade A bullshit, okay? In fact, there is widespread agreement on the concept of vertebral subluxation. If you look in the literature on vertebral subluxation and... You know, you all have to trust me that I have. I've devoted my entire professional research career to the elucidation of vertebral subluxation. That's what I do. You look in the literature, common to every model of vertebral subluxation in the scientific literature, you're going to find those two components, a biomechanical and a neurological component. Now, there may be other stuff, okay, in, in a particular model, but common to every one, there's these two components. Okay? So there is widespread scientific agreement on the concept of vertebral subluxation. Now, they'll tell you there is not because they're banking on your ignorance, not to know the, know the reality. And it gets better or worse, depending upon what side of the fence you're on. There are also objective, valid, and reliable tools that measure those components. And when it comes to science, research, and evidence-based practice, this is it right here. The, the tools that you use to determine whether or not somebody has this pathophysiological process, whatever it happens to be, but in this case subluxation, have to be objective, they have to be valid, they have to be reliable. Valid just means, you know what objective means, valid just means that it actually measures what it purports to measure. Right? So if I had a thermometer up here, well that thermometer better actually measure temperature, otherwise it's not a valid measurement instrument. Okay? The instrument has to be reliable, 
meaning that if I use it, I'm going to get this result. And if Craig uses it, he's going to get the same result. Okay? So it's got to be reliability. Well, we have a bunch of tools that are objective, valid, and reliable that measure components of vertible subluxation. Here's the whole list of them. And this is only a partial list. These are all of the things that we can use to measure components of vertebral subluxation. They're all valid, objective, reliable instruments. We all have access to them as chiropractors. Okay? If you look at the literature and you look at some of these disorders, because okay? understand, I'm not, I, don't want to, I don't want you to get the impression I'm thinking a chiropractic is used to treat these diseases, right? Chiropractic's focus is the subluxation. If people happen to have other diseases that get better or don't get better as a result of chiropractic, they still needed their subluxations corrected in and of themselves. That's where I'm coming from, right? But when you look in the scientific literature, you will find connections between the concept of vertebral subluxation and neurodevelopmental disorders, functional disorders, Parkinson's, PTSD, dysautonomia, TBI, sudden cardiac death, and all these things. Okay? There is overlap between these things in terms of the science from a basic science perspective. Right? And what we do have a lot of in this profession, if you've been out there you know, going to conventions and taking seminars, is we have a lot of people that can stand up in front of a room and connect the dots for us, right? And show how the basic science supports subluxation and these evidence links to these, evidence bridges to these other disorders and how it's all connected, right? The problem is we don't have primary research that supports that, okay? Instead, we're building evidence bridges. And we don't have the primary research because the profession doesn't value research and science across the board. The other thing we know is that all of these things are tied into stress. So the problem isn't whether or not we agree on a definition or whether or not there's valid and reliable measures of subluxation. The problem is that the researchers in our profession that we put on these pedestals are not using the terminology in their research and when they publish that research. <clears throat> this is one that goes back a few years. Adrian Wemban uh, did a survey of peer-reviewed chiropractic journals. He found in his study, reviewed a decade of chiropractic research in chiropractic research journals, okay? And he found that less than 7% of the research published in chiropractic research journals even used the term subluxation in their research. Yes, exactly. So what we have going on in our profession by the chiropractic cartel is professional birth control, right? If they keep subluxation terminology out of the scientific literature, then it never becomes mainstream. And this is exactly what they've been doing. This is a more recent study looking at uh, terminology in the chiropractic literature. Adjusted words derived from this root had a collective prevalence of 0.05% in the literature. Subluxation and subluxations had a collective prevalence of 0.04%, meaning it's barely used in the scientific literature. Here's an example of this. Okay? Here's an example of the nonsense that goes on. This is a Facebook ad. Okay? You may have seen this, right? Chiropractors lost their mind when this came out. If, if, if all you got to do to get chiropractors excited is talk about the brain and chiropractic. Do you know that chiropractic can affect the brain? And chiropractors lose their shit. 
And I hear that stuff and I'm like, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, it's not rocket science to think that if you do something to the spine, it's going to affect the brain. Oh, can you believe it? Chiropractors are so gullible, though, right? So they run this ad. Research, beyond a doubt, adjusting the subluxated spine changes brain function, okay? Now, I'm pretty liberal when it comes to claims and things of that nature. But when something starts out beyond a doubt, you know, you got to be a little skeptical. Where are they going with this, right? But notice the words, adjusting and subluxation, okay? That's in the marketing piece. Here's the actual research paper. Manipulation of dysfunctional spinal joints. Okay. Now, before I go further with this, we have to have one of those discussions that there's no debate about. There is no debate on the fact that subluxation is not the same thing as articular dysfunction. There is no debate that spinal manipulation is not the same thing as a specific chiropractic adjustment. You understand? There is definitions to these terms. They are not the same. Okay? But watch what happens. Okay? So that's the title of their paper. And we get to the abstract. Spinal manipulation of dysfunctional segments. Spinal manipulation of dysfunctional segments. We get into the body of the paper. Spinal manipulation, spinal manipulation, spinal manipulation, spinal dysfunction, spinal dysfunction, spinal man I mean, spinal dysfunction, they might as well just be sp saying spinal boo-boo. And then they explain it here in this section of the paper. The entire spine and both sacred-like joints were assessed for segmental dysfunction, and here's the intellectual sleight of hand, also referred to as vertebral subluxation. No, it's not. It's not the same thing. And it's only referred to as the same thing by you and others like you that want to disqualify the concept of vertebral subluxation and equate it with a general concept of joint dysfunction, a stuck joint. If you know anything about chiropractic and subluxation, it's a lot more than a stuck joint. They go on, all of these biomechanical characteristics are used by the chiropractic profession as clinical indicators of spinal dysfunction. All the spinal manipulations carried out in this study were high velocity, low amplitude thrust to the spine or pelvic joints. This is a standard manipulation technique used by chiropractors, and here they go again, and is also referred to as spinal adjustment. So here they are equating manipulation with a specific spinal adjustment. They are not the same thing. But now there's a paper in PubMed in the index medical literature that says they're the same thing. And that's what all of these chiropractic researchers have done to us in an effort, as she pointed out, to be accepted. And the sad thing is they do it even in journals like this one where they didn't have to do it, but they did it anyway. So there is intent behind what they're doing. They're doing it on purpose. It's calculated. You know, ultimately, the bottom line with this is we want to change health policy, right? I said it before at some point. I said, you know, 
if you're a chiropractor that understands the concept of vertebral subluxation and the devastating effects of it on the human condition, then you want every man, woman, and child to be checked for this thing throughout their lifespan. Well, in order for that to happen as a profession collectively, we have to change health policy. No different than any other aspect of healthcare. In order to change health policy, though, it's not going to you know, take a bunch of raging chiropractors running up the Capitol steps, yelling above, down, inside, out, the pattern made the body, heals the body, I move the bone, God does the healing, right? That's not going to change health policy. Science and research married with a marketing campaign, that will change health policy. This is not rocket science. This is what public health people do. This is why people go to school and become specialists in public health communications so that they can then change health policy through research and marketing. Not in our profession. It all ultimately boils down to what I call the so what questions. Because Mr. Grumpy up there, every time you have something positive to say about any you know, inroads we've made as a profession relative to the science and research of subluxation, he's going to say, so what? And he's going to have another question for you, another obstacle to overcome. The good thing is there's only a few of them, right? So here's the first one. If subluxations exist, what evidence do you have that you can objectively identify them using valid and reliable means? I already answered that question for you, right? I showed you a whole list of objective, valid, and reliable means to measure components of vertebral subluxation. That's done. It's in the can. Does it mean we don't need to do more research? No, we need to do more, but we got a lot of this covered already. But he's going to say, so what? If they exist and can be identified, what evidence do you have that their existence leads to adverse health or other outcome? See, this is where you got to pause for a second. This is where the wheel, you know, the front wheel starts wobbling a little bit. It hasn't completely fallen off the wagon yet, but it's wobbling. This is a problem for us. And we have to be honest with ourselves in this part of the profession to say, you know, you got a point there. Because if we can identify this spinal boo-boo, this subluxation, objectively and validly and reliably, so what if it doesn't make people sick? If it doesn't have any adverse events, who the hell cares? And why would anybody take money out of their pocket and pay you for it? Right? It's got to have some adverse health consequence. This is where the problem of non-therapeutic care comes in with that terminology. Well, if it's non-therapeutic, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just adjusting subluxations for the sake of adjusting subluxations. Oh, shit, here we go. What the hell does that mean? There's got to be some adverse event tied to it. Otherwise, there's no point in adjusting the subluxation. Okay? Now, we have some literature on this, but most of this falls at the case study level. Case series, small clinical studies. So if we do get to this point, we do are able to show, yeah, you know, if subluxation is tied to adverse health events, then Mr. Grumpy up there is going to say, okay, if they exist and you have evidence that it leads to adverse health outcomes, what evidence do you have that you can actually fix a subluxation? Why should I trust my child with you? You say you can fix it. How do you know? Show me the evidence that you can fix it. Show me the evidence you can move a bone from point A to point B. Show me the evidence that, okay, we're supposed to have a normal spine with curves in the lateral and straight A to B. Show me the evidence that you can deliver that. We have an ethical and moral obligation as a profession to society to show that. Otherwise, we have no business asking people to pay for that care. It's absurd. You wouldn't do it for any other service in any other field. 
Unless, you know, unless you just, you want to do it because you believe in it or because of the entertainment value. You know, palm reading. You're, you are free to go out today and get your palm read. I bet you there's some place on Miracle Strip where you can have a palm reading. And you have the right as a free individual to go get your palm read and then make decisions based on that. But you know what? That palm reader is not asking for any money from Medicare. They're not asking for any money from Blue Cross and Blue Shield. They're not, at, they're, they're not licensed, probably, except for maybe an occupational license, right? They didn't have eight years of education to become a doctor. We have a different standard. We're a licensed healthcare professional. If we want to do what palm readers do, then we need to give up the license. We can do that. We could turn it into a religion. It's easy. Anybody can be a pastor. Anybody can be a minister. Anybody can open up a church. So if we do have evidence that it leads to adverse health outcomes and we can correct them, the last one, Mr. Grumpy says, is what evidence do you have that correcting them makes them healthier? Because just because you can reduce the subluxation, if, it does, if that reduction of the subluxation doesn't lead to an improved health outcome, the question still remains, why would I pay for it? I would just be throwing good money after bad. This is the research agenda. This is what we have to focus on. What I'm hearing as you're speaking, you keep saying only case studies. Like the RCT really is the only way to go. But no, but go ahead. Outcomes. They don't do RCT. Absolutely that's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so let me address that before I run out of time, because that's a great point, right? And the question you have to ask these grumpy people when they press you on these issues relative to subluxation and they talk about evidence, the first question you need to ask them is, what level of evidence are you willing to accept? Okay? Because if they say RCTs, then you do exactly what she did. You say, well, what about coronary bypass surgery? What about carotid endarterectomies? What about, what about appendectomies? Are there randomized controlled clinical trials on people who have had their appendix removed and people who haven't? I don't know if there is, but chances are there probably isn't, right? Because collectively, that faction of that profession has decided through expert consensus and opinion and everything else that this is the standard of care and this is the way to go. The problem is why we can't do that, while that's not going to work for us, is because we don't have cultural authority. Medicine and allopathy has cultural authority. I don't know if you've noticed, but they can do some pretty funky shit to people and nobody seems to care. They can kill 100,000, according to the literature, can kill 100,000 to three quarters of a million people a year, and there has never been a congressional hearing about this. A hundred people got injured because they didn't know the difference between the accelerator and the gas pedal in a Toyota, and there were congressional hearings on that. The president of Toyota Motor Company was called before Congress. And the reason why that stuff happened was people didn't know the difference between, they thought they were pressing on the brake, but they weren't. They were pressing on the gas, and when the car didn't stop, they pushed on the gas harder. That's what the outcome of that hearing was, about all that investigation. 
And by the way, it's not the first time that happened in history. It happened to Mitsubishi years before it happened to Toyota. So we have to get cultural authority. You know, it's like, it's like minority. It's like being in a minority. Unfortunately, right, it's wrong, but the reality many times is that minorities have to do more than the entrenched culture in order to make inroads. That's, the way, that's, that's what we have to deal with as a profession. And I want to stress this. There is nothing from a technical perspective stopping us from doing this. Technically speaking, there's nothing stopping us. We live in the era of big data, okay? I mean, you understand we were listening to Michael Flynn's phone calls with the Russian ambassador. We have the ability to do that. NSA is building huge data complexes, right, to listen in on all of our conversations. They're doing it right now. They're listening in on our conversations and all of our data and gathering it. We have the ability to do that and to analyze that data because of the advent of the internet, the ability to manipulate large databases of information, and advanced statistical methods. The technical means exist. It's the will of the profession that's missing. It's the profession, and especially the subluxation faction of the profession, that doesn't value science and research that's what's missing. Because the profession as a whole has a disdain you know, or an apathy for science and research. But when it comes to the subluxation faction, it gets worse. They're not only apathetic, they have a disdain. They, they proudly say, I don't need no stinking research. BJ said it, I believe it, that settles it. And then they spout some colloquialism as they run off the stage. We have an ethical and moral obligation as a learned profession to show that what we do has the effects that we think it does, right? Otherwise, we shouldn't take the, take the license. So in addition, just real quick plug, in addition to running the malpractice company, I run a nonprofit foundation for vertebral subluxation. We have a research agenda that's based on those so what questions. Uh, Dr. Chris Kent is the president of this organization. We have a partnership with the ICPA, Cairo Futures Malpractice, and the foundation. It's called the Advancing Futures Project. We have a whole research agenda related to this that we're carrying out. A bunch of people that have supported us, some studies we've published. I might show you a couple of things in the next uh, session. I still have five. Actually, let's, can I, let's end there. Let's end there, and then we'll start back up in the next session. Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm going to, at the next session, I'll pass around these clipboards. If you want my slides, plus I'll give you a whole bunch of other stuff, just put your email address and name on it, and I'll send you everything that I did, plus a whole bunch of other stuff.